Welcome to the Mustang UMC podcast recorded each Sunday morning during our 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. services. We invite you to join us in praise and worship during that time, and our hope is that this podcast serves as an encouragement for you and for your family in your daily life. So we come now to the time in our service in which we hear and receive the word of God. And so we invite you to be risen in body or in spirit as we read from Luke chapter 15, 11 through 24. These are the words of Jesus in this familiar story for some of you about the prodigal son. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but he is now found. So the party began. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. Let us pray. And so, Lord, we just pray for that Jesus would be spoken here in our hearts and we would receive your love and goodness today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week I I talked about uh, one of the major pieces of advice that um, I received and I pass on is that if only the next step is clear, take it. Um, Even when you don't see the the way, even though you're not sure of what all might be in front of you, um, just to take the next faithful step. And and, uh, so I was thinking as I was reading this prodigal son, and I was thinking about that this week, um, it reminded me of the movie Jerry Maguire. Now, I don't know if if you watched the movie Jerry Maguire or not many years ago. I'm going to spoil the movie, but you've had like 25 years to watch it, so it shouldn't be that bad. So in the movie Jerry Maguire, Jerry is a sports agent who's part of a large corporation, but he feels that he has a clear next step, which is to start his own company. And so one day he decides that he is just going to break branch out on his own. He makes his speech. He quits his corporate job to start his own individual practice. There is a, a young lady played by Renee Zellweger who, um, is, uh, who says, I will follow you. And so they go and they start their own little small business. He has one employee and he has 
um, one client, uh, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., who is this football player. Um, he's the one who convinced Jerry to say, show me the money. You probably remember that, one of the famous lines from that movie. Things, uh, uh, things as, as movies tend to do, um, uh, boy and girl fall in love, and so uh, Jerry Maguire and uh, the character played by Renee Zellweger, they get married, um, and they live happily ever after not, um, and uh, things begin to go bad because he's struggling for his career. He's trying to make it work, um, but with only one client, he's put all his eggs in one basket, and his basket was a little erratic, if you will. Um, so they... Uh, the, Jerry, um, he, him and his wife, they, they are beginning the process of divorce, and um, there's a Monday night football game. And in that game, um, his, his, his athlete uh, is, has a great game, is scared with an injury, but ends up being okay, and they realize that he is going to make a lot of money, and that life is going to be good for them, that this career venture for both of them is going to be good. But Jerry finds this emptiness because he has nobody to celebrate it with. And so he begins the trek home um, to talk to his wife. And so they show us on his journey, on his way home. And I can imagine that on the way home, he was practicing his apology speech. He was practicing what he was going to say um, when he got there. And so when he opened the door to his house in his living room, not only was his wife, but was a group of ladies who, um, let's just say, were not the happiest with the men in their life. And so they had been spending time talking about um, some terrible things that, that men had done to them. And so he walks into the, the room, he says, hello, and he begins, oh, I guess we're going to do this here. And he begins this speech, and, and then there is another classic line from that movie, you complete me, right? This, this, heartbreak, this heartbreaking and heart-loving sort of statement. And then Renee Zellweger's character says, shut up, shut up, shut up. And there's this like little moment of silence of like, what is going to, what, what is he, you know, she's just going to cast him out? Surely not. It's a movie, right? They all live happily ever after. And she says these words, you had me at hello. I didn't need your explanation. I didn't need all of that stuff that was coming. You had me the moment that you humbled yourself enough to walk through the door and engage and be with me. You had me at hello. And that's sort of the image that I get when I think about the prodigal son, right? Because here he is. He's a long way off. And he practices his apology speech. And he doesn't even really get a chance to do it. Let's kind of dig into the text. You know, one of the lines that stood out to me um, anytime scripture is read, I always invite people to kind of think about what is it that, that is standing out to you. But one of the lines that stood out to me as we were doing this as a staff was these, these words, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it just hit me. Like as a, as a dad, um, I've, I've got uh, two, two boys, like I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Like there is nothing my boys could do that would ever make me feel that they're not worthy of being my children. There's nothing that, that they could say or do. There's no way that they could be that I would not still want them to know that their dad loves them and is for them. And, and so I thought, what level of grievousness it must be that, they, that he came to this place of shame and guilt and condemnation, that he is no longer worthy to be called their son. And that's what he felt after this whole experience. 
But the father wasn't listening. Did you pick up on that? He didn't even really acknowledge the premise that the son was trying to say. He just said, no, 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 no. This son of mine was lost but is now found, and it is party time. He didn't even venture into that place of saying, you're right, you really hurt me. You're right, you probably should feel that way. No, 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 no. Welcome home, son. And and I think for a lot of us parents, that's what we would say. No matter what you've done, you're always welcomed here. But what happens in the bad place is that condemnation, these feelings of shame that can overwhelm us, continue and continue and continue. And the way that I think about it is that the bad place is really the treadmill of condemnation, that you really, it is hard to get out of it because you just keep living in it and living in it and living in it. Let me tell you a little bit about how it works in the bad place. I don't know about you, but sometimes I screw up. I mess up. Well, what happens is when I mess up, I have this time of what am I going to do about it? And sometimes I just beat myself up over it. Like, Aaron, you should have known better. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. You are better than this. And sometimes those feelings, as, as, that, as that happens and the cycle continues, and I begin to feel worse about myself. You do the same thing sometimes, right? Your, your self-talk. If you talk to other people the way you talk to yourself, golly. What do we do to ourselves, right? We have the spirit of condemnation that comes. You're not good enough. You're a failure. And so what happens is we can't handle that anxiety. And so then we, we, because in our pain, we we act out even more. And sometimes people, we, we go to addictions and we have these different addictive behaviors so we don't have to feel that way. And then we feel even guiltier because we know we shouldn't be doing that addictive behavior, but we can't stop it. And so we just keep it. And there's a whole big sense of unworthiness and of condemnation that we continue. And this is not the Lord's work. This is the work of the bad place. Because in the good place, in the kingdom of God, there is a pathway to light. It's not this treadmill where you're doing a lot of work and not going anywhere. There is actually a pathway to get from here to there. And it's through conviction. All right, so the Lord doesn't condemn us. He doesn't say, you're right, you're no longer worthy to be called my son. You're no longer worthy of being my daughter. He he does not experience that condemnation. Instead, he convicts us with truth. You are my son or my daughter. Yes, you have messed up. Come and follow me. And that's what the good place is all about. It's this pathway to light. And sometimes we get it really wrong because we think we have to earn God's love just like we think we have to earn the love and the favor of other people. Of course we think we have to earn God's love because in a transactional world of the bad place, you always have to earn it. But you don't have to earn it here. And you don't have to earn it with God. I remember uh, years ago, I was getting my car detailed, and I was talking to the guy who was detailing my car, and uh, he found out I was a pastor, and he said, you know what, one of these days, I'm going to get my life right, and then I'm going to go to church. And I told him, that's not the order. You come to church in order to get your life right. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't, we don't expect you to be perfect. We expect you to be walking down that road. But he, he didn't feel that the church was a safe place to get his life right, that he needed to do it. Uh, There was a a church uh, that they had a a mission statement, believe, become, belong. Um, And uh, pastors all the time, everywhere, have always loved alliteration. So believe, become, belong, right? We just, we like the way that if you believe right, then you become a Christian and that you belong here. But that's really not the way that it works. Because really, once you experience love in a trusted community, once you can walk with people, once you know that you're loved no matter what, you belong, then you can become and believe in the right way. And the order matters. Uh, Tim Keller, who uh, is a pastor up in New York, I like the way he says it. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. 
But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. So I don't know your story, but I know that you have one. And probably there are some of you who are in this room who experience condemnation on a regular basis. There's a word that somebody told you years ago, you're not good enough, and you still believe that today. Maybe you beat yourself up again and again and again. You have the secret that controls you, and you just feel guilty and shame all the time. And God does not operate in shame. He is not here to beat you down. He is here to walk with you and help you to come to the other side and to help you to know that you are loved and accepted. This idea of grace, in the good place there is grace. Grace is this undeserved or unmerited favor. God is for you. He is not against you. And maybe you've been trying like the prodigal son to find, to find good in all, to find life in all of these other places, but it's been meaningless. You found success and it's been meaningless. You found unhappiness and it's been meaningless and you want more. And maybe today is the day you're going to turn your heart and your life over to Jesus and say, I want to feel the love of being your son or your daughter. I want to feel that love and acceptance and believe it to be true for you. That there's nothing you can do that would make God love you anymore. And there's nothing that you could do that would make God to love you any less. And the image that we have of the Father tells us that. Now, as I think about this, this image, and so you're going to kind of go with me a little bit, um, is that I'm going to imagine that the father's house is on the top of a hill. And so every morning, that father, after his son leaves, every morning, he gets his morning cup of coffee, and the first thing he does as the sun rises is he walks around the house looking in all directions to be able to see, is his son coming back? And then about lunchtime, he, he takes his Pepsi. It's my story, so he has a Pepsi with him. And he walks all the way around the house, and he's looking in the distance, wondering, maybe my son will come home. When he gets off of work, and, and right before dinner time, he, he takes a, another stroll around the house, just looking out to see maybe his son will be there. It doesn't matter if it's cloudy it doesn't matter if it's sunny it doesn't matter if it's raining even if it's lightning and thundering he walks around and looks into the distance maybe seeing his son and at the end of the day when the cloud when when the sun is going down at that last little bit of light he is looking into the distance and that is who our father is he is looking into the distance to you and so today Maybe there are some of us who, who we need to come to our senses. We've been trying to do it our own way for so, so long, and we, we've, we need to hold on to the truth that our Father loves us, not because of what we've done, but because of who He is and how much He loves us. And so our hearts can be hardened. The prodigal son, when he approached his father, had a very hard heart. I'd rather you be dead. But then he came to his senses, and he ran to the Father. And it's the same thing that's true for each and every one of us is that we have hardened hearts, and we need to work through the process of unhardening them. We need to come to our senses. Now, here's the thing, is that we have to come to our senses. I have to come to my senses. How much would sometimes you like to slap the sense into somebody? Figuratively, not literally. Some of you are like, literally I would, right? That does not work out. Um, right? How many times have we thought, ah, oh, that person, well, if they would just realize, if they could just, 
If they would just do this, right? But that's not what it is. We have to come to our senses. We have to hit rock bottom. In the recovery community, it's like you have to admit that you're powerless over your life. Like nobody else can admit it for you. Nobody else can say, hey, yes, you do have a problem. We have to come to our senses and to understand that if you could have already changed it, you would have already changed it. And then you have to run to the person who can change it, to run to the Father. And you, you can get your apology speech ready. And, and in this story, um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that he says some things both of conviction and of condemnation on himself. He says, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. That's good. That's conviction. I have messed up. I should not have done what I did. But then he adds these words, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. That's condemnation. It's about worthiness. Conviction is about behavior. Condemnation is about worthiness. You and I are not worthy because of what we've done. We can't earn God's love. We can't make it right. We are worthy because we are God's children. And he loves us and what he has done. And so the father doesn't even own the condemnation part. He just says it's party time. Now, we know that the story actually doesn't end there, right? There's a little bit more to the story. And so let, let me sort of read Luke 15, 25 through 32, because the story continues. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. Of course he was, right? He's a responsible one. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. Must have been tap dancing for him to be able to hear it. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved, interesting word, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I mean, this story really is a lot of us, right? We, we can often identify ourselves as the older brother. Why are we so fascinated is what is happening inside of other people. What is it about us that are like, ooh, what's going on with them, right? Why did they think like that? Why did they make that decision? What is wrong with them? How could they believe that? How could they do that, right? We, we, we wonder about that a whole great deal. It makes me think of, of one of my, my favorite pastors. He's a guy by the name of Steve Cuss. He's written a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. I've referred to it before, but he talks about chronic anxiety. And he says that, that anxiety resides in four spaces. Um, the first space is the space inside of me. Um, and so there are things that I have my assumptions, I have my expectations, I have my pressures, I have my triggers. I don't like to deal with the space inside of me because it makes me feel bad. So I want to avoid this at all possible. Anxiety number one. We'll come back to that. Anxiety uh, space number two. There's a space between me and you. There's this anxiety that sometimes happens between me and, and, and you, right? If you think about the older son, obviously there is some anxiety between the older son and the father. I have slaved for you. I've not served you as a son. I've not loved you as a son. I have been sl a slave essentially for you. What is wrong with you? There's this anxiety 
that exists between you and another person. Now the third space is the space inside of them. Um, I want to come back to this one. Let's get to the fourth space real quick. There is the space that exists uh, between other people. All right. Have you ever walked into a room and you've been like, ooh, something was said in here? Yeah, yeah you're just like, yeah. okay, I'll see you all later. Bye, right? We, just, we don't know. There's this anxiety that exists in the midst. But let's go back to that third space. Because this third space is um, the space inside of the other person is one of the most anxiety-producing spaces. Because we do. We wonder, what is going on with them? What are they thinking? Why did they do it that way? What is happening? And we can spend a lot of time wondering about why other people are doing what they're doing. In fact, that is a regular practice of people and a regular practice of Christians, no matter where you are, no matter when you are. And really, my favorite example of this comes from after Jesus's resurrection. And so there's a story, I believe it's in John 21, of, of Peter, um, who, who, G, who had denied Jesus. Um, and no, let, me just, let me just get to it. So Jesus' disciples are on a boat. All of a sudden, Jesus appears making breakfast, all right? Now, one of the reasons why I know, so Jesus was a Jew, which means they didn't eat pork, which means he didn't eat bacon. So... I realize one of the reasons why Jesus loves me so much is that he doesn't eat bacon, so there's more left for me and you. <laughs> Some of you, that's the only thing you're going to remember right now. I just know that. That's not the point of it. The point of it is Jesus is making breakfast on the beach. We don't know what it is, so imagine your porkless breakfast of whatever sort, all right? And Peter sees him, and he jumps out of the boat, and he swims towards Jesus, all right? And so there's just this moment with like Jesus and Peter. Now, the last time there was a moment between Peter and Jesus, Jesus said, oh, by the way, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, even if all these other fools deny you, I'll never deny you. I wouldn't do that to you, Lord. So what happens? Jesus is under arrest. Peter, they, they come to Peter and they're like, hey, Peter, don't you know that guy? And he's like, no, what guy? That guy? No, not, not him. Then somebody else asks him, no, I don't know the man. Third time, no, I don't know him. Three times he denies Jesus, rooster crows. He just, boom, feels the guilt, feels the shame. And so Jesus sits down with him and says, Peter, do you love me? Once. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Ask him again. Peter, do you love me? Twice. Yes, you know I love you. Ask him a third time. Peter, do you love me? Yes, a third time. So everything's good, right? Like he's been restored. Huge moment in Peter's life. Then Jesus has this prophecy. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you like. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And it goes on to say, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. And so Peter um, died by crucifixion. His hands were stretched out and was taken where he didn't want to go. Uh, the, the, the story is that Peter was, wanted to be crucified upside down because he did not feel to, that he could die in the same manner of Jesus. And so he got this big prophecy about his future that he's going to faithfully follow Jesus all the way to death. And he has just been restored. So what does Peter do? Let's go. Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved. Most of people think that this is John. Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. This is awesome. Biggest moments of Peter's life. What about that guy? Jesus, what are you going to do in his life? What about him? 
And Jesus is like, what is that to you? Why do we miss it so much that in the most profound moments of our life, we're still like, but what about him? Why are we still like, but what about what they're doing? Can you believe what you saw on Facebook about them on that? And we can become so distracted as older brothers and sisters that we miss the mark entirely. When Jesus is dealing with something right in front of us, something huge, and we're like, but what about them, Lord? Have you heard what they're doing? I don't even know what kind of Bible they must be reading. They're totally missing the mark. And Jesus is like, what is that to you? And I feel it again and again as a pastor. So easy for me to get fixated on them, whoever they are. And I miss what Jesus is doing. And one of the most common things that we do is we see the log in the eye of another person and we miss the speck, or we see the speck in the eye of another person and we miss the log in our own eyes. So, so easy. But it's not what God wants for us. He does not want us to be condemning of the behaviors of other people. He doesn't want us spending our time wondering what about them. He wants us to be looking in ourselves. Now, I know that this is hard for some of you all, and I know that because I get to see you when I preach, and there are times you elbow your husband, or you elbow your wife, or you rub your kid's shoulder, or you text your friend and say, you got to listen to this. It's for you. What about them? But that's not what we're dealing with today. And that's what we're not dealing with every Sunday. This is not about them. It's about us. What is God doing today in your heart and in your life? Now, one of the things that I believe is that we want mercy for ourselves and justice for other people. We judge other people by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. And we completely and totally miss the mark because we do not know the story of other people. We do not know what's going on in their hearts and lives. We don't know what God is already doing, but we do have to trust that God is already doing something. And that God is already at work in their life and that God is taking them on a journey and that he is prompting them towards him. And so for me as a pastor, I don't know your story, but I know that you have one. And I know that in your story, God has moved you. Sometimes you've moved quickly. Other times you haven't budged at all. Sometimes you've come to your senses and sometimes you've stayed far away. And so what I believe my job as a pastor I used to believe that my job was to convict people. If I just say it right, then then I could convince people that the way I interpret the Bible and the way I follow Jesus is the way that everybody else should. That's totally wrong. I'm sorry. Do you know what my job as a pastor? It's to proclaim my understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for me and what he can do for people and to walk with people on their journey. That's it. One of the most loving things that anybody has ever told me in their life is they say, Aaron, I don't know where you're going, but I want to go with you. I don't know where you're going, but I want to go with you. That's what it means to walk. And sometimes we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes we go the wrong way. Sometimes we walk along the wrong pathway. But Jesus is right there saying, let's just keep going. His arms are open wide. He's ready to give us a hug. And he's just waiting for us to come to our senses, even when we've been walking with him for a while. And so this is what I believe, is that our job is not to convict other people. We proclaim the truth as we understand it, absolutely. But we walk with people where 
They are because Jesus came from heaven to earth to walk with us. And it's so easy for us as people who've been following Jesus for a while, who've been in church for a while, to get a heart of stone. To being like, I don't understand why they do that or they do that. or Can you believe that? We deal with that holy ground of that third space, that space inside of another person that's not ours to deal with. In fact, so much of our anxiety is because we're worried about a space we have no control over. And that's holy ground and that's God in that person. And we get hard hearts. But Jesus has come to change our heart of stone to this heart of flesh, to this soft heart that meets people where they are. And we do not become condemning people, but we become people who walk along the journey and play the long game of loving one another. So how do we unharden our hearts if we find ourselves like the older brother? We come to our senses. We realize that God is not placing us in this world or in this life so that we can convince or convict people, but so that we can walk with people and meet them where they are. He will do the convicting and he'll never do the condemning. So we shouldn't either. And we run to the Father again and again and again. Because I think oftentimes the reason why you and I were so easy to think about the sins of others, we're so easy to stress about what that person did and how they did it and how we deserve it more is because we don't believe the basic truth that our Father loves us and that his love is more than enough for you and I and that there is nothing that we can do. We feel like we have to earn it, but you don't have to earn it. All you have to do is receive it. So come home running. His arms are open wide. And maybe some of us, we we get the heart, and I know I do, Sometimes I get that heart of stone. And so for me, I got to run to the Father again and again. Thank you for listening to the Mustang UMC podcast. Once again, our services are at 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. every Sunday morning, and we would love to see you there. For more information about the Mustang United Methodist Church, please visit us at mustangumc.org or email us at office at mustangumc.org. That is office at mustangumc.org. We hope you enjoyed.